Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to Action Replay on DCUFM. My name is Sean Dreslin. Thank you for joining us wherever you are. I'm joined as ever by Sean Crosby. How are you doing? Not too bad. And we're joined once again for the third week in a row, I think, at this stage by Sean Comer. And he'll be here next week as well to review the Super Bowl, which is happening this Sunday uh, it's actually a home game for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, led by Tom Brady. And they'll be looking to beat the defending Super Bowl champions, the Kansas City Chiefs, led by their quarterback, Patrick Mahomes. It's the first time ever that um, the Super Bowl has been a home game for one of the teams. And Comer, to be honest, this is really is the only time of the year when a lot of Irish eyes are on American football. So just lay out for everyone listening the state of play as it, as it relates to this game and what the, the dynamics are. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me back on, guys. Second of all, um, it feels like, as a new, from a neutral point of view, it feels like one of the most anticipated Super Bowls in recent memories. You know, if, of course, my team, the Philadelphia Eagles, are not involved, so the most anticipated Super Bowl for me was Super Bowl 52 when they played the Patriots and won, but obviously they're not involved this year. And So out of all the Super Bowls I've been looking forward to where they're not involved, this has been the one I'm most looking forward to. Uh, it's a battle of two generational talents is the best way to put it. Tom Brady, of course, was drafted, I think, in 2000 and one something like that he's been in the league years you know everyone knows the story around him he was in new england for nearly two decades won six super bowls there had the greatest dynasty of all time you know everyone knows you know no you don't need anyone to tell you how great tom brady's career is he's been around forever and um he's 43 now and he wants to keep playing until originally he wanted to keep playing until he was uh 45 but now even this week doing the press conferences, he said that he might go beyond that, which would be insane. So that just, you know, goes to show how great he is. Meanwhile, on the other hand, you've got the the Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes. And Patrick Mahomes, I think a lot of people already see him as the best raw talent to ever enter the NFL in terms of how unbelievable his arm is, how he can move, the fact that a play with him at quarterback never seems to be dead. Um, you know, he's, he's very different to Brady. Brady's known for is known for not being mobile, but just for being efficient as a quarterback, you know, extremely efficient. Patrick Mahomes is, is different. He has everything you want, I think, in an NFL player. And like I said, it's the battle of two generations. This is only Mahomes' fourth year. And he won league MVP in in his first year starter, which was his second year in the league. He won Super Bowl MVP last year. And, you know, he has a chance to do that again and to have all these accomplishments only four years into your career you know and would be incredible so a lot of people are likening are likening it to if if anyone listening follows basketball it's being likened to if Michael Jordan ever met LeBron in an NBA finals and of course that never happened because they never played the league at the same time but that is probably the best comparison for this game and you know, the, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, for since they last won the Super Bowl back in 2004 or something, hadn't won a playoff game up until this year. And, you know, it had been years of absolute mediocrity over there. And two years ago, they bring in Bruce Arians as head coach, and he's a really old head in the NFL. And I think he's he deserves a lot of the credit for how good they are. 
of course he brings in Tom Brady during last year's offseason I think that they finally had a leader in the locker room as they call it for all the other talented players there to look up to and we see how big an impact he's had and meanwhile the Chiefs are seen by many as the replacement to the Patriots dynasty so you know if they want to kind of take that title I think that uh, Sunday obviously is a game that they're well obviously they have to win it because it's the Super Bowl but you know, it's vital that they win this one in particular to show that they can beat Brady, I think, in a big game and to show that they are essentially the next great dynasty in the NFL. Have Brady and Mahomes played against each other before? Uh, yeah. First time? Uh, yeah, no, they've played against each other before. So a couple of times. They've played against each other in the regular season this year. The Chiefs actually have already played in Tampa against Tampa this year. And um, Mahomes won that game. Uh, the Chiefs we're up big on the Buccaneers and the Buccaneers kind of came back into it late on, but uh, it wasn't enough to win. But I think this one will be closer. And then last year they played each other in the regular season. And then in Mahomes' first year as a starter, uh, obviously, like I said, it was the second year in the league. They played each other in the regular season that year because uh, it was a mad game in Foxborough. The Patriots beat the Chiefs 43-40. to And then they played each other in the AFC Championship game that year as well, where a trip to the Super Bowl was on the line and Brady beat Mahomes on his own turf. So they have played each other before, but because they were playing on two teams who would never meet in the Super Bowl because of the way the NFL is structured, you know, I'm not sure anyone ever thought they'd see this happen. So, like I said, because of just the matchup of the quarterbacks, because of, you know, how great these two guys will probably be when it's all said and done, the difference in their play, clash of generations, everything at that, that's why it is being so built up. It strikes me that Tampa Bay are in are something of the underdogs in this game because obviously they're going up against the team that won the Super Bowl last year. But also this is kind of their second this is only their second ever Super Bowl. They had they've only been in one before in 2002 which they actually won. So they're one of the few teams in the NFL with a 100% record in Super Bowls. But it does feel like if from my perspective at least that if Tampa Bay did win this they'd be, it'd be a massive shock. And I kind of, that belief is kind of reinforced based on the fact that, as you said, the Chiefs have already beaten the Buccaneers this year. Uh, yeah, I, I it would be an upset win, definitely. I think I would have, I haven't actually checked the odds yet, but I imagine that the Chiefs are favoured. But yeah, the Buccaneers winning, of course, by that sense would be an upset, but... And I don't know if that's anything to do with them. I think it's because the Chiefs are just so good. I'll bring in another basketball comparison. The Chiefs are compared often to the the Golden State Warriors dynasty of the last couple of years because they just never seem to be out of a game. You know, you can't... That old saying, it's not over till the fat lady sings. That's really the case with the Kansas City Chiefs. You can just never count them out of a game and that's all because of Mahomes. So... Yeah, it's just because of how great the Chiefs are is why the Buccaneers are seen as underdogs going in. But I have to say, if you're putting Tom Brady down as your underdog heading into a game of this magnitude, you're playing a dangerous game because, you know, he's proven he's proven everyone wrong, I think, in over his career. You know, at the start, no one ever saw him as a quarterback in the NFL. He was drafted in the sixth round. It was, you know, it's a it's a once-in-a-lifetime story, I think, Tom Brady's. And then... You know, when he won his first Super Bowl with the Patriots in only his second year, you might have thought, oh, it was just a fluke. He, you know, 
he just kind of came in and played well at the right times. But, you know, he just kept doing it, kept winning in big games, showed how great he was. And eventually he got to six. And then when he moved to Tampa, everyone was saying, oh, it's, it's not New England. They don't have the same coaches. You know, it's not what he's used to. I don't know if this year will go well. And yet here he is. He's the first ever quarterback to bring a team to play a Super Bowl in their home stadium, which is, you know, it's just incredible. So, yeah, it would be an upset if Tampa Bay wins. But at the same time, I nearly wouldn't be surprised because of how many times Tom Brady has proven people wrong. And it would not be, you know, in that sense, it wouldn't be a huge surprise if he just manages to do it one more time. Now, obviously, a big part of the Super Bowl, and for a lot of non-sport fans, the only interesting part of the Super Bowl is actually the halftime show. But obviously, given the state of the world, things, I assume, will probably look a bit different this year. So what are the plans in place for that? Uh, I haven't actually checked. I'll check now for you um, to see who's doing the halftime show. So it is... Because last year it was Jennifer Lopez and Shakira, I think, and they always make a big deal of um, making a massive production out of it. I remember Beyonce was in it in, I think it was 2013 or something. And yeah, I think that's the only time I've ever actually watched the halftime show. And yeah, they make a massive deal out of it. I don't know. I don't know what the players could possibly be doing in the locker room while that's happening. I'd say it's a massive yeah. distraction and it must be a nightmare for the coach trying to give his halftime team talk, especially if they're trying to turn the game around or something. But what are they up to this year? Uh, well, I just see there that the weekend is headlining it, which is an interesting one. Um, you know, I, I don't listen to him a lot, but it'll be interesting to see, can he do a good halftime show? It's it's a big talking point because people love Jennifer Lopez and Shakira last year. And, you, you know, I, I thought it was a decent Super Bowl halftime show myself. Um, I, you make a good point about... How do coaches actually talk to their players at halftime with the noise that must be getting generated from the pitch? I'm, I'm not sure. I think it's just something they have to do. They have to learn to deal with. And then I remember the year before last, they had uh, Maroon 5 or something because people kept cancelling on the NFL and it was a disaster. It was supposed to be a brutal halftime show. Um, But yeah, the weekend is headlining it. Obviously, I don't think they'll have... I, I'm not really sure how they're doing it because of COVID. I'm sure a lot of people who are supposed to be helping with the show will have to be tested before the game and whatnot. And I'd say that uh, he probably won't have as many extras that say the likes of Jennifer Lopez and Shakira had last year. But yeah, so that's all I can tell you about the Super Bowl halftime shows that the weekend's doing it. So that'll be interesting to see, I guess. So last question and probably the most simple question of the lot. How does the game go? Uh, it's a, It's a tough one. I've come on here a couple of times before and I've, I've doubted the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and they've proved me wrong. I didn't think they'd win in New Orleans. I didn't think they'd win in Green Bay and they won both times. So, you know, it's a really cautionary tale for me to go against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and I don't know if I can... But at the same time, it's really tough to see the Chiefs losing because they're just so good. So, uh, but again, the whole story of Brady, you know, just cementing further how great he is by dragging a team to a Super Bowl in their home stadium is uh is something to go off so i don't know i'm going to say just because of how good they are the the chiefs will win it but take that with uh the side of caution will it still be a game by the fourth quarter oh yeah i think so definitely i think both these teams their strength is on offense the defense for the buccaneers is probably better than the chiefs one but 
Uh, both teams, of course, have great quarterbacks. Both teams have great weapons for their quarterbacks. So I'd say you're expecting something of a shootout here. So I'd say that this will be one that's decided late. Well, as the NFL season is reaching its grand crescendo, the Premier League season is continuing to just chug on at a nice, steady enough pace. And from the games since we've last been on the air, and there have actually been a lot of them, and there's more of them tonight, it did feel as though with City and Liverpool winning and United and Leicester not winning, it did feel, Crosby, like it was a case of normal service resuming from last year. Yeah, probably probably the most regular uh, uh, weekend of Premier League football we've had all season. Like you said with Liverpool, and I guess in simple terms, Comer, uh, they're back by the looks of things. Uh, the 3-1 win at Spurs was just kind of quite emphatic, really, after the results they've had lately. as uh, woeful from defending from Spurs for a lot of it. Um, we'll get on to them in a minute, but 3-1 dismantling West Ham as well. And that second Salah goal, I, I don't know about you, Comer, but I see that as being up there for goal the season. Yeah, maybe because it's not a long-range effort or something, I might miss out. I noticed that they tend to get goal of the season, but I think I said it to you, the, the goal was an absolute clinic in counter-attacking football. And, you know, not every team can do that because they don't have players who can play quality balls like Alexander-Arnold and Shakiri. I think that they, Liverpool touched the ball seven times or something in the space of 13 seconds. There was... The corner came in from West Ham. Robertson headed it clear. Alexander-Arnold took it under control, switched it to Shakiri. He then first time plays it to Salah, who you kind of thought at first had missed the chance because it kind of came away from him. But you realise it's fallen perfectly at his feet and he just puts it into the corner. And it was just, yeah, it was just an incredible goal. It was, like I said, if you're looking how to be a good team in counter-attacking situations, I think you need to study that goal and see what Liverpool did and, you obviously need to have someone who can execute uh, crossfield balls like um, Alexander Arnold and Shakiri did, and you know I thought that Liverpool had a good few goals on uh, Sunday against West Ham. I thought that they were comfortably the better team. You know, uh, you could criticize West Ham for maybe not attacking Liverpool's makeshift centre back partnering of Nat Phillips and Jordan Henderson as much as they should have. But I thought Salah's first goal was very good. The way to kind of the ball just kind of stopped dead and he just got enough air on it to curl it perfectly into the net. We went over the second goal, you know, just how good it was. And I think you're right. It should definitely be up there for goal of the season. And then the third goal even was just like perfect ticky tack of football. They walked the ball into the net, which are some of the best goals to see. So, yeah, I thought that while you can criticize West Ham for not maybe going at them as much as they should have in a similar vein to Spurs, I think that both Liverpool 3-1 wins over London clubs were very emphatic at the weekend. Yeah, and it kind of seems like they're back at their almost full pump. Um, you mentioned actually the makeshift uh, centre back pairing, and like there was a lot of talk. I think on that counter attacking goal, I think there was a lot of talk of did Jordan Henderson kind of follow it the whole way up, and he was almost on the edge of the box nearly. Um, by the time Salah got to the ball, and just speaking of him in particular, like he's come in in a centre back and hasn't actually looked half bad. I think it's a real testament to. The kind of player that he's become for Liverpool, like he he really is this um kind of great leader in that side, and kind of you can see the unselfishness of him willing to slot in anywhere and do a job. Just how impressed have you been with his performances recently? Yeah, very much so. Obviously, he's not a an elite centre half like uh, Van Dijk or Gomez is, but 
you said um, I think that you can see really why he's the captain of this football club you know um, he you know he's just, he's everything I think you want in a player that's not you know perfectly talented and you know there's been up and down moments in his Liverpool career but I think that any football fan should appreciate a player not based off their talent but because of how much they'll apply their, themselves on the pitch and Jordan Henderson fits that mould in the sense that you know he won't blow you away in midfield like a Steven Gerrard or whatever but he just applies himself so, so much. And, you know, he really is a perfect cog in that machine because I think Jurgen Klopp as well loves players like that. And for his performance at centre half, actually, he looks fine. I think obviously the pace isn't there that's there in their starting um, duo of Van Dyke and Gomez or even Matip is probably a better centre half than Henderson. But yeah, he just, he shows that he can do a job there if called on and, I thought that he wouldn't have to play there much after Sunday, obviously with the news breaking that they've signed Quebec from Schalke and Ben Davis from Preston. But the news broke late last night that Joel Matip's gone for the season with an ankle ligament injury, which is just devastating for him because of his uh, history with injuries. And it's devastating for Liverpool because of, you know, just how bad the centre-back situation is. So even though that they've signed Kabak and Ben Davis, and even though Nat Phillips has proven he can probably do a job there, I think that we're probably going to see some more of Henderson at centre back before the season's out. Yeah, it'll be um the Dan Matip loss is is a huge one. Uh, speaking of uh Ozan Quebec and Ben Davies, uh just well, I guess it it's a thing that they needed kind of fixed imminently with that centre back issue and it took right until the very last possible chance to get it. But I guess are they are they title contenders again now that they've got these centre backs? Uh, I think I think we're gonna to have to watch how those guys fit in over the next few weeks and how they play in big games because the upcoming fixture list for Liverpool is uh, it's tough. So I think we're gonna to have to go in a couple of games and see whether or not they are still in the title race. I think you know everyone was writing the eulogy of this team not too long ago and they followed up with two very dominating performances and now they've got two maybe reliable centre halves. So if Kabak and Ben Davis can stay fit and play well in the big games. And that means that the likes of Fabinho and Henderson can now play in midfield, their best position, which could change uh, the outlook on this team completely. So, you know, that could definitely boost somewhat of a title charge. But I, th- I think a lot of it rests on Sunday's game against Man City. You know, I'd say that Klopp will be looking to get Kabak and Ben Davis starting by that game. And, you know, it feels like the title race rests on this game. I know that there's been so many twists and turns and competitors already. But if Liverpool win, everyone will be talking about how everyone wrote them off too quickly and how you know, under Klopp you can never write them off because they just keep coming back. But if City win, it'll be their first win at Anfield since the start of the 2000s. They have an absolutely terrible record at Anfield. And then all the talk will be about how Liverpool just aren't winning the title this year because City beat them at Anfield and how City are probably going to march on and win it. But I think that maybe there was a bit of you know hindsight is twenty twenty, but maybe there was a bit of overreaction a fortnight ago or even last week when people thought, thought that this team was done so like I said if they can win these upcoming big games against the likes of City I think there's a Leicester game in there and Everton there as well and it'll be interesting to see them in the Champions League ties against RB Leipzig but if they can do well in those games then they're definitely still in it Yeah well moving from the two sides most likely in this tie race to one team that have completely uh, fallen out of favour with it. Tottenham Hotspur, as we mentioned, losing 3-1 to Spurs 
and or sorry, three one to Liverpool, and uh, with with just some terrible performances at the back, and like even Irishman Matt Doherty looks out of all sorts. But and and there's a lot of stories now coming out that Serge Aurier left the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium at half time, and stuff like this. And then they went and lost one 0 to Brighton. And I guess the big question now, President, is it's to do with Mourinho and. Like there was a lot of talk when he was at United as well that he kind of is he's a bit his methods are outdated and he's not with the times, and I guess this was his chance to come back and prove everyone wrong. I think it looked like a perfect fit when he first came to Spurs because they're still kind of an underdog, but I mean, it's I don't know they just they don't look like a Mourinho side at all, and I guess the real question is is he past his best? Probably. Probably, I think we. To be honest, it's not the first time we've been saying that Mourinho's past his best. And I remember being very quite skeptical of his appointment because I thought, yeah, he's good at getting that initial boost, that initial surge of guys. And it did look like at the start of the season that they kind of bought into his his philosophy. But as as a manager as a managerial um career progresses at a club teams slowly start to work out your system and um that that's the that's the case with spurs and call it hindsight being 2020 maybe but like i said i didn't think Mourinho was right for the club i think the sacking of pochettino at the time was very very harsh it was uh, it was almost a chelsea-esque move um to to sack your manager after such a a brief bad run of form following a a real a real triumph in getting them to the Champions League final and then they went full Chelsea by bringing in Mourinho um if I were Spurs I'd give him a bit more time just to see if this is a blip or just a, a real downward spiral but at the moment it's not looking good at all and what you know if if you can even put put your finger on one thing like because it's it's it seems to be a whole mess at times. What is the biggest issue? I think I think one thing that kind of stands out with Spurs obviously right now is like Kane was missing and Brighton he was gone for most of that uh, Liverpool game as well. You can see just how impactful he is on the team. But you know what? What are the other issues? Do you think going on with the Spurs side? I think, well, Kane is a big thing because we saw last year um, when when Kane and Son weren't there that Spurs really did struggle. So those two are obviously massive. But I think another thing could be Bale. Not so much that he's not performing himself, but the reaction of the team because he's not really performing. Because when Bale came in, it was supposed to be this big uplifting moment for the club. And they were kind of expecting him to inspire them. And he hasn't really done that. And I think um I think that's kind of hurt them. And maybe it is another case of Mourinho himself just um we know how he is. He's um he's very much the mind of we speak in one voice, my voice, that Brian Clough quote. And maybe like it did at Chelsea and like it did at Man United, that is just starting to run a bit thin. Yeah, uh it's it's a it's a difficult one anyway. But moving on to 
is Mourinho's former club, um, Man United. And, uh, well, the bubble burst eventually. Uh, a 2-1 loss to Sheffield of all teams this season. And um, I guess, Comer, we talked about it last week, I think, that you know, there was no real cohesion in that team and they, that Solskjaer is relying heavily on the likes of Bruno Fernandes and Pogba to turn up. Um, it, I guess we're we're proving that that was proven to be true, and I know we've we talked about it as well with Liverpool people jumping to conclusions kind of thing. But same things happen with United. Is the title push if it was even there? Is it is it is it done and now? Do you think? Well, I I never really believed in that this United team could win a title to start with, so I don't know if I can call their title push done. I think that it was just a good run of form for them, and I think that. Anyone who thought that they were reliant on individual moments of brilliance from Pogba or Bruno Fernandes or whoever it might be was proven right against Sheffield United because no one really had a good game that day. There was a lot of talk about how, uh, you know, the whole VAR decision in that game and whatnot and how the refs kind of screwed them over. Well, the referees actually came out and admitted that it was the wrong decision. But to be fair, it's Sheffield United. You shouldn't let one bad referee decision or even two, I'll go as far as, actually determine your result against them. I think no matter what, you nearly have to beat them because they're that they're that terrible. They're on course now, I think, to be the second worst team in Premier League history. I think they're going to be better than Derby or something, which, you know, is a very low bar. But, you know, this isn't a this wasn't a game against another member of the top six that uh, you know, you actually played well against but got cheated out of and can feel hard done by, you know, you lost to just the worst team in the Premier League and should be completely unforgivable from Man United. And, I mean, it, the second goal they conceded was absolutely pathetic. First of all, Maguire plays a hospital... I'll try that again, sorry. A hospital ball back to David De Gea. And then De Gea's not really sure what he's doing with it, so he just kind of kicks it away rather than just putting it out for a throw-in. And then you saw the way Sheffield United were passing around the Man United box. It was like a five-a-side game. They were, it's like they were daring them to take the ball back off them, and United... Looked like they didn't know what to do. And then, I forget who scored the goal for Sheffield United, but it's like he got the ball and just decided, ah, I'll have a crack, see what happens. And he just hit it and it went in, obviously. And they couldn't find a way back into the game. And I think that, you know, freak results do happen. You know, we've seen that happen to big teams. You know, you've seen Liverpool lose to Burnley and City have had bad results this year, like drawing it home to West Brom. So, you know, like I said, freak results do happen, but I don't know if this is, was a freak result. I think this was United's weaknesses being absolutely cruelly exposed. And I think that when you lose at home to Sheffield United, I think you could lose to anyone in this league. And that's not a good sign for a team that's supposed to be in a title race. Yeah, and I guess one thing as well, obviously, like we talked we talk about the second goal in particular, is just pure individual mistakes. Like you wouldn't see that on a Sunday league pitch at times. But this loss, I think... It's kind of exposed wider issues with this United team. Like we said, like, you know, the reliance on individuals. But I think as well, it does, I don't know, you look at the team and it calls in the question, Solskjaer's decision-making, which I think has been up for debate for quite some time. Like, you look back even to the Champions League, I think it was against PSG or Leipzig, where uh, Fred was booked early on and he never took him off at half-time. And then the second half, he got sent off and stuff like that. And, and with the team selection against Sheffield, he brought back Axel Twanzebe, who I think most United fans wanted to see progress more in this team after his performance against uh, PSG. And he brought in Alex Tellez as well. 
But like, you know, these lads haven't played in so long. And especially Twan Zabi, he's so young. And, and you know, he has these mistakes and kind of poor games. And you're beginning to wonder, like, why is he, he takes them out and then brings them back in? And it's such an elongated period of time. And the exact same thing with Eric Bailly, which most United fans are completely perplexed as to why he's being left out of the team. But I guess, like, just how... How I just how much does that really expose? I haven't, or um, I guess how much has he has it shown? Kind of Solskjaer's uh, poor decision making. I mean, yeah, it's 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 exposed it as if that Fred decision against PSG you mentioned didn't expose it enough. I remember watching that game and all the pundits were talking about at halftime how you absolutely had to bring off Fred. It was clear that he wasn't in the right state of mind. He should have been sent off in the first half, and you know when you get away with getting sent off the obvious call for a manager to bring that player off and when Solskjaer did do it and got sent off even though the sending off in the end looked somewhat harsh you kind of you couldn't really feel sorry for Solskjaer because he had just made completely the wrong decision um I think his decision his thinking about the team for Sheffield United was probably okay this is a this is an easy game you know they're bottom of the league they're terrible we'll win this one and obviously it didn't pay off and look if you're going to be in a title race you, you can't think like that you have to take every game obviously as serious as any other you can't assume any you know wins are not given in football you can't just play a risky game like that because what happened to United uh, last week will happen so it yeah it's a weird one I think he's trying to take these calculated risks and trying to think outside the box with these decision with this decision making but it's not paying off for him and I don't think that you would see you know, absolute top tier managers like Klopp or Pep Guardiola make the kind of weird decisions that he makes in games. It's like he's, it's like he's trying to prove something. It's like he's trying to outthink everyone else, and it's just it's not working. It's like he won't go with an obvious decision at times. And like like we saw on Wednesday and in the Champions League group, it cost United both times. Yeah, it is. Some of his decisions are um, questionable. And uh, after the Sheffield result, their next fixture was Arsenal, and it was a nil all draw in quite a boring fixture and you know it's it's a it's a game that is built on that old rivalry every time it's on sky sports throw in that clip of roy Keane giving patrick Vieira grief in the tunnel and there's always pictures of wenger and ferguson but to be honest the two teams couldn't be further from that anymore um and i guess you know neither side looked particularly that interested, I don't think anyway. Uh, you could tell by how they played. Uh, I guess, Breslin, do you think there's two kind of school, two ways of thinking about it. like has the the absence of fans does that take away from the intensity, or has this fixture just lost its kind of spark altogether? It's gone. It's absolutely gone. The the audacity of those lads to to show the Roy Keane stuff and talk about the rivalries of old. I get it. It's, it's, they're trying to sell you the match. So you, you tune in, of course, us as sports fans, we were going to tune in anyway. We, we tune into anything, but it was just such an abject game. I mean, both teams were kind of there for the take and then they just didn't go for it at all. And to call Arsenal United, the kind of, the rivalry that because the Arsenal United rivalry was built out of the fact that they were the two best teams in the country. Mm. That 
It's like saying that it's like giving the same sort of thing to United Leeds, which I'm sure they will. They'll bring up all the history, but to call it a kind of a pivotal rivalry in 2021 is just nonsense. Um, and it does um, it does raise concern. It would raise a concern in both Arsenal and United fans that game because, with the exception of a couple of great chances for Cavani. It, it it never felt like either team really wanted it. I think um, Solskjaer has been rattled by the the Sheffield game. We'll see how United do tonight and see if they're on their way to recovery. And of course, Arsenal have just been in the doldrums all season. Uh, as I've said before, they're nowhere near as bad as they were near the start of the season where they were hovering over the relegation zone. But they're kind of in a dead space at the moment. They're not going anywhere fast. And this this game reflected that. Yeah, it it, um, it certainly isn't what it was, really. Uh, looking across the other results from the from the league uh, this weekend, it was all pretty rudimentary. Like City being Sheffield 1-0, an early goal. Kind of typical City, once they get going, they're hard to stop. Uh, Tuchel got his first win as Chelsea manager. Uh, 2-0 win over Burnley and they'd 70 uh, percent uh, 70% possession, I think, in the end, or something like that. Um perhaps a bit of a surprise was Leicester dropping points against Leeds. Uh 3-1 win for Leeds, then Bamford with a contender for goal this season as well. But um just looking across the continent, uh, this week the Coppa Italia quarterfinal was on. I don't know if anyone saw it, but it was a Milan derby, and we talk about like rivalries of old. And it seems like Italy is kind of getting back to that. AC Milan are top of the table of the Serie A. Inter Milan are only just behind them. And it was a feisty affair with Inter winning 2-1. And uh, there was a huge bust-up between Romelu Lukaku and Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Ibrahimovic was sent off as well after it. Um, but even looking at the two players this season, like Romelu Lukaku's 20, goal, or, uh, yeah, 20 goals in 26 games in all competitions. And Ibrahimovic at the age of 39, it has uh, 12 goals in 10 games in Serie A. And I guess starting with Ibrahimovic, Comer, just he's, I, I don't know how to describe him. Like the fact he's still going at such a high level and he's near enough 40, it, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah, for that, um, well, with that incident against uh, Inter, I think he's under investigation or something. So that'll be, you know, an interest. It's a bit of a sketchy uh, situation that, but it'll be, uh, interesting to see what happens there but if we're just going to talk about his play on the pitch then yeah it's you know I talked about Tom Brady at the start of the show in American football and about the longevity of his career and it's just unbelievable um, Slatan Ibrahimovic is very similar in his craft in the sense that there's, there seems to be no stopping this guy anytime soon you know um, yeah, he just he continually does it as a high level. I thought when he went to LA Galaxy, he was taking a retirement tour, and then at the end of it, he decided, "Nah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come back and have another crack at it." But you know, I I think a big criticism of uh, Serie A is often how exiled Premier League players go there and look really good, and usually that's more down to the quality of the um, of the actual league itself. You know, you talk about a lot of the United exiles, uh, Lukaku. I think Chris Smalling was another one. Uh, if I'm going to go to Liverpool, Lucas Leva was sent to Lazio. All these guys who were basically deemed not good enough for their squads in the Premier League went to Serie A and looked like looked really good. Lucas won uh, 
Lazio's player of the season, his first season there. Chris Smalling was adored by Roma fans because he would he kept putting in solid performances. And then, like you said, Lukaku seems to have found his shooting boots again. So, you know, that's usually been my criticism of Serie A is that the quality of the league usually makes players look better than they are. But I suppose if these teams can kind of put it together in Europe and play well against teams from other countries, then that might put that narrative uh, to dead, really. Because, But, you know, if that's not really what happened, uh, this year Inter got knocked out of their Champions League group at the hands of Borussia Mönchengladbach. And because they couldn't beat, I think, Shakhtar in the final game or something, they couldn't get through. And then that was kind of embarrassing for Antonio Conte's side. So I don't even know if they're in the Europa League. I think AC Milan are. So I think that to judge Serie A, you're going to have to watch these teams against other European teams. Uh, Juventus will be an interesting one to watch in the Champions League. But on Juventus, I kind of think that their window for winning a Champions League passed when they lost those two finals within three years. I think that apparently they want to get rid of Ronaldo because the wage bill over there is in a messy situation because of his contract. The team is very old, um, mostly all over the place. Buffon seems to just not want to retire for some whatever reason. I think Chiellini and Benucci are still the centre-back pairing. And, you know, as good as these guys have been throughout their career, you know, it's it, it's clearly time to move on from these guys. So, but I suppose when you talk about the actual two Milan clubs, it'd be interesting, definitely, if they could get a good quality rivalry going again, because, um, you know, that's somewhat of a, a throwback, definitely, to when we were younger, you know, when I first really got into football, when I was... A kid, you know, uh, Italian football was still at its height. You know, you had that Liverpool versus Milan final in 2005. They met each other again two years later. Inter won it in 2010. You know, Italian football has always been a good um, country to follow when uh, they're playing well. And when they're not playing well, there's absolute apathy towards that league. So I think that... You know, if AC Milan win the league again this year for a club that looked dead and buried in terms of just the wider picture last last year, that would be really interesting. But yeah, I'm, if I'm going to if we're going to talk about Italian football being back, I'm definitely going to want to see them play some other teams from around Europe first. Yeah, it'll be um, an interesting one to watch. And uh, well, it's football is not the only sport uh, going around at the moment. Uh, there's a lot more to look forward to, and particularly the return of the RBS Six Nations is this weekend. Um, well, President, it was it was I guess it's a bit of a pun. It was touch and go for a while um, as to whether or not this would go ahead. Like you had the French government wanting to limit the movement of the French clubs and stuff like that, and you know with the current climate. Is it and it is it the best thing to go ahead with? Because obviously it's different to the likes of the Premier League, which is just domestic. Um, and we'll see what soccer does when European competitions return back. Uh, but yeah, just how risky was it? A good thing that this is going ahead, or is there too much at stake? Here? First of all, calling it the RBS Six Nations is absolutely adorable. It hasn't been the RBS Six Nations for years. Uh, I think it's the Guinness Six Nations now. Actually, it's just um, it's had a lot of turnover and sponsors. But um, I'm really glad that the, the Six Nations is coming back because I'm really nostalgic for it. And um, I think that it's the right, it must be the right thing because there was a lot of consideration in France. And considering that France is pretty bad for COVID at the moment, 
I think they wouldn't have let the French play if they hadn't taken a very long time over the decision decision and were sure that it was the right thing to do. So I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Um Ireland feel like they have to take the next step now. Uh last year it was a new coach. They were kind of working out the kinks. And yeah, the Six Nations got cut off in the middle of it, but we've had a few games and we've had that Autumn Nations Cup thing. I don't know how much you can read into that, but we've had some time now. So it feels like um, we need to take a, a step forward. And it's a good starting off point this weekend to play Wales because Wales haven't really a adapted to their coach leaving as well as we have I would argue I think that they're still missing Warren Gatland and Ireland in it's a bit of a cliche but we've got a good blend of youth and experience we've got all the old hands Sexton, Healy, et al and we've got we saw some new players coming through that um that new new that new winger we got from uh from New Zealand he had a really good showing and he'll be pushing Stockdale for his place all the way through. So I, I don't know if Ireland will win this, this six nations. Honestly, I don't think so. Um, I think it's England's to lose, but I'm confident that we'll at least make a good fist of the games against France and England and not come away with our pride hurt because Last last Six Nations was uh, was was reassuring to me because we weren't expected to do much at the top end of the table, but we went into the last game against France knowing that if we won by a certain amount we'd take the championship. And even though that did not happen, uh, we lost pr- fairly convincingly. I would say the fact that we were in that position at all, at all it exceeded expectations and i'm hopeful that we can we can move forward again and make another fair challenge yeah and um it'll be interesting seeing like you said there's a lot of new additions kind of a good mix of old and new in the squad and um obviously the opening game on sundays against wales who Ireland did beat in the Arm nations uh, cup and I remember actually we were talking about it on the show at the time and there was kind of that feeling of well it's only Wales and so I guess you know do you how much has this Irish team uh, kind of progressed since the All Nations or like you know what were the biggest kind of pitfalls for them during that uh, tournament? Well I think the biggest pit- pitfall was the potential of getting Covid uh, but Really, I think that it was a chance for them to, to just link back up again uh, after they hadn't played together in a very long time. And any sort of advantage they could get over their opposition would be a benefit. And I, I think overall, it was um, it was a productive tournament for us. You could argue the tournament itself shouldn't have even been there to begin with. But I think Ireland came out of it looking pretty good so yeah i like where we are going into this uh six nations and but as for the women's six nations 
I've I've said it before on this show, and I'll say it again. I'm really, really, really disappointed that that Six Nations got cancelled. I can understand the under twenties Six Nations going because the youth guys, it's not as important. But there was a massive 2020 campaign um, in Ireland to get a 20% increase in the viewership and participation in women's sports by the year 2020. If you can't, she, if she can't see it, she can't be it. That was the slogan. And to cut off this tournament because, yeah, admittedly, it won't make as much money as the men's tournament. It never has. The fact that the men playing the Aviva and the women play in a 5,000-seater stadium in Donnybrook should tell you that much. But this is supposed to be the senior level of women's rugby. This is supposed to be the top level. And um, to to eradicate it, it can be defended, COVID, but the men's competition is going forward. And the, the fact that the women isn't, it, it it doesn't sit right with me. Yeah, and you're right. It is kind of, it does kind of bring up that conversation again of the whole elite sport and elitist, elitism in Irish sport and stuff. And, it isn't um, a great look, you know, for young young women who are into sport as well, like to to see that, you know, clearly uh, their game isn't treated uh, as equally as um, the men's. But uh, just seeing as how the men's is the only one available to us now, you, talk, you mentioned kind of briefly as well that it's England's to lose. So I guess kind of answers the question of who's your favourite to win it. But there's a lot made of this French side. Uh, at the moment, uh, how do you fancy their chances? They're definitely making moves. I think England, France will be the game that decides the tournament. So uh, I'm not sure what week that's in. I don't think it's at the earliest, it's going to be week three. Um, but that's certainly the one to keep an eye on. Ireland, I would say, are the dark horses um, because Wales, they're still in that intermediary phase. Maybe they'll move forward a bit. Uh, after not not after during this tournament, but I don't think they will. And Italy and Scotland are Italy and Scotland's. You know, they're. It's very frustrating to not to see them make any forward progress, but they they just they there's no reason to put any sort of optimism into them because they 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 don't meet the standards that some of the other teams are at but i'm hopeful i'm hopeful as any sports fan should be going into a tournament that they're interested in ireland's playing wales on sunday uh the other games are england scotland and france italy we we should have optimism it's it's unhealthy not to be optimistic going into a tournament especially one that's as exciting as the six nations is and we'll be covering the entire tournament here on Action Replay. We'll have our reviews of the games that happened this weekend. And we'll be looking ahead to the games next weekend on next week's show. And we'll have Comer back to review Super Bowl 55. I think it is. My Roman numerals aren't terrific. Uh, from Tampa Bay and see if the hometown Buccaneers can spring the surprise and dethrone last season's winners, the Kansas City Chiefs. That'll be on the show next week, but that's it for this week. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram. It's on the screen right there. We're at DCUFM Sport. 
Crosby, Comer, as ever, thanks so much for being on. Thanks very much. Thanks, Breslin. I've been Sean Breslin, as Comer rightly said. This has been Action Replay. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next week.